Jim Stroud fights to save America from the woke agenda by exposing the left and inspiring right turns with facts and informed opinions. Prepare yourself for intriguing interviews, political snark, and social commentary from a patriotic and conservative perspective. And it all starts in three, two, one. The Things I Think About podcast begins now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another action-packed episode of The Things I Think About podcast. I'm your host, Jim Stroud. And with me, as always, is a very special guest. Special guest, tell us, who are you and what do you do? Well, thank you, Jim, for having me. My name is Seth David Radwell. And most of my career, I've been a business executive, having run many consumer brands. But I took, I've taken a three-year hiatus from my business career to work on researching and writing called American Schism, which I'm happy to say is a bestseller uh, on Amazon and elsewhere. And the book, the book is an investigative tracing of the American journey. And I'll tell you more about it, but I, had, I did it because I was very concerned about why our political discourse has collapsed in recent years. Interesting, interesting. Before we get into that, because I want to know more about your book, I want to get you to sell an argument for me, because sure. uh, my friends and I, we gather around the campfire, <laughs> so to speak, and we, we argue, uh, lament about the left and so forth. So this is, this is one of our latest arguments. So we were looking at uh, Biden, who was in uh, a video call, a Zoom call with, with Xi, and while they were talking, uh, uh, China's uh, jets were flying over Taiwan, right? And, and then we look uh, at this other incident where the Taliban is, is marching our, <laughs> our weapons that they confiscated uh, in a parade, you know, and we're, we're going back and forth about, you know, we should retaliate, we should do this, we should do that. Then the question came up, you know what, why is the United States the, the, the policeman for the entire world, you know, and, right. we started, and we started going back and forth for different reasons why we shouldn't be, uh, and then uh, playing devil's advocate why we should. And going back and forth. And, and these are some of the arguments. Let me just throw some of them out sure, there. Sure. All right. So uh, one argument. All right. So when the United States steps down uh, from the role of international cop, bad things happen. Right. So you have like World War One. We step down from our position, boom, you know, uh, which caused World War Two. Uh, letting, uh, let's see here. Yeah, we stepped down in the 1930s, early 40s, letting the UK and France take the position. They kept drawing lines for Hitler, letting him get by with territorial gains. We shouldn't have stepped in. We wouldn't have stepped into the war if Japan hadn't bombed us. Uh, Americans are getting tired of, of the role. Um, uh, another argument is the US needs to take a stand to help those who are not superpowers in order to promote peace. Uh, another one, uh, these are all yeses, by the way. Uh, another one, uh, the UN has had 60 years or so to prove it can do the job of being the world's policeman, and they're not doing a good thing, a good job of it in this person's opinion. And then you have a lot of people who say no, uh, on the no side of things, where they say that um, we should look, we should take care of our own country. We have enough problems as it is. Look at Detroit. How come we can't fix that first? Right. Uh, we condemn other nations for doing the same thing that we're doing. Uh, U.S. has many issues debt, immigration, education, and so forth, take care of home first or America first, uh, which was the argument there. 
what do you think? Should we be the policemen of the world? Uh, do you think that yeah, uh, we should let people just do their thing and we'll do our thing? Is it isolation? Uh, what do you think? I well, let, let me start. I appreciate the, the, the debate. It's, 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 it's very interesting. And I'm, I probably could make a case for, for both why we should and why we shouldn't. But, but I just want to mention that it's so important to understand uh, history because, mm. you know, for, the, for most of, of the world's history, we've been at war and it's been, it's been uh, quite tumultuous and, and filled with war up until uh, kind of this time, which is the, the least amount of war and fighting, believe it or not, doesn't seem that way that mm. we've ever had. So one of the things I do in my book, American Schism, is, is use history to act as a solve for our wounds. So my first thing is about looking at history. Now, do I, do I think we should be the policemen of the world? I think we should try to spread our credo and our ideals, those that are in the Declaration of Independence. I think we should try to foster them both at home and abroad. But I don't think that being a policeman is necessarily the best way to do that. So, so your, your, your question really has a, an implication that the policeman steps in when there's problems mm. and we're supposed to have an organization that does that on a worldwide level called the United Nations, which was established you know, since the war. And you're, you're right in saying it has not done a good job. I think it, there are some things it has done well, but its record is very mixed. So mm. I think we're, we'd be much better at working with allies to create a police force like the UN or something else than trying to take that on alone. And here's why. And again, I could make a case probably for both sides. Mm. I think that invariably, when we've tried to act as a policeman, especially in, in recent centuries, uh, well, in recent decades, I, I should say, it's, it's turned out to be much more difficult and much more complex than we anticipated. And invariably, there are unexpected outcomes. Now, I, I think you're right that during the last century, our involvement in the two world wars really led us to, to have the, our first global leadership role on the planet. Mm. And there were some very good things that came out of that. But I also think in recent times, we've seen that the US using military force to be a policeman has unexpected and often negative consequences. So is it about soft power more so? Well, well so, so yeah, I think it's that's a great question, Jim, because to me, I take a step back. Let's look at why did the US become the envy of the world in the first place? What is it about our credo and our model that's been so successful? despite all of our problems. Hmm. And I think there are two things. I don't think it's our military power. I think it's that in the history of the world, we're so far the best example of self-government that's ever existed, even with all our problems. Hmm. And two, we've been able to build a model of meritocracy that while far from perfect, really stands up to many as being a place where anyone could come and make it here. Now, but regardless of how you're born, whether you're born uh, to, to a landed aristocrat or what, you, it's a place where you have an opportunity to make it. Now, I say those two things because I do think those are the symbols of what make America great. And I also say it with some irony because I don't think either are perfect. There's, these are ideals. Our democratic form of government is an ideal, as is our meritocracy. 
and, and needs to be improved and worked on. What, what I get concerned about and when I speak about an American schism is that when people on both extreme sides, the left or the right, when they want to tear it apart as opposed to building on it, that I think is destructive. And we can talk more about that, but, but I think going back to your question, because I think it's a good one, I think we can be most influential at, at sharing our ideals of those two things, of what it means to be a meritocracy and what it means to be a democratic representative republic. And, and um, I think that, is, that will have more influence over the long haul than, than, than hard power. Now, I say that recognizing that as atrocities happen, I mean, what's going on in, in China now, sure. th there's a lot of problems in the world, yeah. but I don't think we can be effective at being the policeman to answer your question. You know, this is it's interesting what, you, what you're saying there because we, as America, we just set an example for people to to emulate. And I'm wondering that we, we've been around for 200 plus years. Um, and I guess, do we need better marketing? Because I see that a lot of countries envy us. They want what we have. People get on, on rafts to risk their lives to get here. You know, our southern border is evaporated. You know, it's another example of people wanting to get in here. And if I am one of these other countries looking from the outside, looking in, thinking about everybody wants to get to the United States, why don't I just change uh, the way we change our processes and change our rules because the United States, so more people come over here or we can keep our people from leaving. But right. it, just, it seems like, I don't know if it's just a, a willful blindness or not, but if something is working over here, why not duplicate it in your own country instead of trying to tear it down or steal from it or, or whatever the case may be? Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a lot of forces at work here. Uh, and I think that part of why people try to come here is because they're fleeing incredibly difficult situations where... Uh, they they live and part of that is because overall unfortunately the model of the reason why the model of democracy hasn't spread is because it hasn't really it's failed in many countries i mean there's definitely a trend in my view towards autocracy as being the model of choice for most governments by by, by that i mean you know democracy is hard work mm. <laughs> it, it's not efficient it takes a lot of work. And I can come back as I talk about in the book, American Schism, I talk about why it's then if it's so hard, why is it superior? Because I, I do believe it is superior. But I think autocracies are easier. People feel comfortable uh, when they have a father like figure. And they usually are men who uh, seem to know every how to take care of them. And edicts being handed down are not debated or there. It's kind of easy to follow them. And if you don't follow them, you know, you get in trouble. So it's pretty clear cut, whereas in democracy, it's a little weirder. Right? So, so there's reasons why I think the autocratic model is working. And what's funny about it is it's working on both what, the, what we would have called the left and the right. So in other words, in, in communist China, um, there's no question in my mind that she's become an autocrat and <laughs> so has Putin in, in, in Russia. Sure. And, and then you have, you know, kind of on, on, the, on the right side, You've got what's going on in Hungary or Turkey, Erdogan and, and uh, Orbán, and Brazil is very interesting too. I mean, I, so these are autocrats as well, even though they might be much, might have a much more more uh, distinct political philosophy. At the end of the day, these are figures who want to amass power, 
and are more concerned seemingly with staying in power and amassing power than they are about solving public policy problems and leading to solutions, in my view. And so I think that's the danger, is that democracy overall is losing. And that's one of the reasons why, Jim, I, I took a break from my career to investigate and, and write American Schism. You know, what, what, why, are we, why is democracy not winning the hearts and minds across the world? And not only that, it seems like recently, you know, there are many autocrats who are taking plays out of the Trumpian playbook. Uh, Bolsaro is already saying in Brazil that should he lose the election, it's going to be a fraud. <laughs> so, so, so stuff. So, so that's where we're headed, and and that's kind of why I, I think um, an investigative tracing of our history is so important for understanding where we've come from to understand where we can go. What you said about Balasaro made me wonder: is a, is an autocracy built on populism uh, a better, a better, stronger foundation than uh, one built on tyranny? What do you think? Yes. Well, so that's a great question. I think autocracies always always have a uh, you know, invariably, there's, a, there's an element of populism because, mm. you know, one of the things I do a lot in, in the book, American Schism, is talk about populism. It's such an interesting word. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's important to understand what, where populism came from and what, what it's about. You know, in the founding of our country, there was, there was this split in ideology. The first, the American Schism is what it is. And it was during the Enlightenment. And the schism the break was really between people like Alexander Hamilton, John Adams on one side, and people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine on the other. And they disagreed. They disagreed uh, very strongly about what the vision view of America should be. Now, I think the roots of their disagreements are what we're seeing played out today. And that's what the book traces. But what the disagreement was about primarily was what form of government a republic should have. Where, so, so people like um, Jefferson and Franklin and Payne very much believed in the notion that the sole form of government that is legitimate in the social contract is a representative democracy, a decentralized government led by people. Whereas the aristocrats like Adams and, and Hamilton and others believed that a, an aristocratic republic was the right model meaning the elites who had solutions, they could govern because they knew what the people's problems were. So, mm -hmm. you know, invariably there was this elite model, which you know, to some degree they were, you know, people like Adams and many of the moderate enlighteners, they eschewed democracy. They were afraid of democracy. Democracy at that point in, in the 18th century meant mob rule. And so when they got to the constitution, they put strong guardrails against democracy. Now, wh what does this have to do with populism? Well, populism comes out of the school of thinking that more people should have a voice in government, that, that we should move towards a more representative democracy. So for example, in the constitution, the people who had a voice were white men with property. And that was it. Right. And of course, the first time a real populist movement happened in a sense, was, was during ja Jackson's presidency. And he, in fact, expanded this, the voting suffrage to all white men. You didn't have to be a property owner. So at that time, when, when the populist fervor of people wanting, po populism really means to me, people representing that they want a voice and power 
against elites who they who they feel are disdainful, elites who are deciding things for them. Now, as a movement itself, populism has been very, very um, instrumental in our development as a country. For example, in the in the 18th in the 19th century, after the Civil War, the Farmers Alliance, which was a populist movement, really helped build rights that led to the Progressive Era. And there was, a, there was a party, there was the People's Party, that was a populist party that for a couple of years was really gaining in momentum. And the party itself failed, but the reforms that they advocated, this populist movement, starting with the Farmers Alliance, ended up leading to reforms that both Democrats and Republicans implemented, like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And these reforms were a lot about moving power away from what had become elite institutions like the banking, the railroads, the, you know, the trust busting that Roosevelt went on. My mm. point being is that populism can be a very uh, good force. Now, it can also be quite destructive because here's what happens. Pop another definition of populism in my mind is populism is a political tool, manipul a manipulative tool used by leaders, political leaders, who want to gain power, and they they uh, this top-down populism makes arguments that seemingly are anti-elite to curry support, but at the end of the day, what the what the the the, the candidate or the leader is doing is really manipulating people, and that's also what happens in populism. So people get easily manipulated, which is what they were originally afraid about with the power of the mob. It's you know Man Madison wrote a lot about this in the Federalist Papers. So I think when we talk about populism, we really should be careful and understand what our terms mean and how we're using it. And, and are we talking about populism that is bottom up, that's a healthy desire for more non-elite expression in government? Or are we talking about a populist that's a political tool used by, by uh, politicians who may have evil motives or at least self-interested motives? I like how you're uh, describing the things in your book because it's, it sounds like you're not trying to overcome a disagreement, but you're trying to bring light to the right disagreements. <laughs> That's exactly right. Overall. I couldn't have said it better. It's I think so much of what we what we discussed today is not mm. really helpful. What are the real things that matter? What are the underlying causes of our disagreements? Mm. But but as as well though, Jim, well, the other the other key aspect of the book is that uh, we need to change how we talk to each other. That. It, it, like it's not we, we cannot have debates that are constructive over Twitter and oh, oh you know over in in I in, in environments that are encouraging uh non-cooperative behavior so for the way I, I, I discuss it in the book is this you know we all as humans we have these primitive instincts around being with an in-group and attacking an out-group it comes from our survival millennia ago that's how we survived mm. and it's you know it gets our amygdala our emotions going it's amygdala driven all that emotional energy it's very human and we all know this by the way because if, we, if we've ever been at a sports stadium we know how it feels to cheer for a team sure and that's all great but what i argue in the book is that that method has crowded out reasoned discussion in our political debate. So, so that way of operating is fine for the political sports arena, but it's not great for making public policy. And if you look over our history, our disagreements have always been characterized by both reasonable debate based on facts 
as well as emotions. They've both been involved. But at, at times when emotions have crowded out reasonable debate, that's when we've gotten into trouble. And I think that's where we are now. That, that it's, it, it's too, too much of, of what happens today are people listening to things they want to believe and staying in their echo chamber and not maybe questioning their own points of view and thinking a little more deeply about it or understanding someone else's. You know, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, a, de a democracy is hard work, but it's superior, but it requires listening and it requires understanding and invariably compromise. And my research in American Schism shows that 77% of Americans are part of what I call the exhausted majority. And what that means is that they're, they're, they're tired and frustrated by the, the extreme left and right uh, taking up all the airspace because they don't agree with a lot of the extremes. But mm -hmm. yet you hear the extremes a lot because that's what our social media models amplify. That's like the clickbait that gets, sure. gets said now. So, so they hear stuff all the time and they think that's not me. And one of the differences with this 77% exhausted majority and the extremes is the following phenomena. The exhausted majority and 77% approximately believe that we as Americans have more in common than that which tears us apart and that we're going to need to listen to each other and compromise, that our current path is not helping. Whereas the extremes on both sides believe that they're right and they're not interested in compromising. <laughs> so And so that's where we are at. And I, I could be... I could give you any number of issues. You and I, you know, Jim may disagree politically on some things, but I think we, we both agree that a reasoned debate that, that looks at facts and truth and is not ad hominem attacks. And, and right. that's the way to talk to each other if we're going to be productive. So, right. so part of my book is actually about how we talk to each other. How do we rehabilitate our political dialogue so it can be productive? Because Disagreements, the country has flourished based on disagreements. They're important, having political disagreements, but having a way to work through them is also important. Does the exhausted uh, majority deserve to have a third political party? Is that well, even possible these days? That is a great question. And, you know, one thing I discuss in American Schism is in the third part of the book is solutions to all these problems. And one part of the solution set is what I just mentioned, kind of it's a mindset change about how we talk to each other. But the other part of the solution set are practical structural solutions. And one of them is I think that we have to break the monopoly on the political space that our two party system has, mm. because it's become an industry that's, that has a lot of money. And like, I'll give you an example. Every time there's a third party candidate with different ideas, invariably, especially at the federal level, that candidate is a spoiler. They take votes <laughs> from one and then the other one. Right. So, so it's a spoiler yeah. candidate. Well, yeah. look, in, in, a, in a, in, for example, in multi-choice voting or a different system, that's not the case at all. Like, so what, what is multi-choice voting? Multi-choice vote or ranked choice voting, it's often called. Mm. In ranked choice voting, you have a, you could have like five or six candidates or different parties. Is that what I had in New York? What, is it? Yeah, we had that in New York, right? Yeah. So you okay. pick your first choice, and then if your first choice gets thrown out, you your second choice counts. Now, why is this a better form of voting? Number one, it allows third parties in that are not spoilers. 
So you have more ideas. But the second reason it, it's better is because it actually ex expresses the will of the voters more accurately. Because if you're that candidate who votes for someone who doesn't get in the final, the final round or gets thrown out, you get to vote again. Your second choice counts. So it, it, I mean, that's just an example of a structural change that's actually quite helpful. And I think it's helpful also because it, as I argue in the book in more detail, I don't think it's helpful that the two parties have such control over the, the dialogue. Uh, and, and I think it's become, there's an, another book out called The Politics Industry. It's by um, Catherine G uh, uh, Gale and, and um, Michael Porter. And it discusses also both the fact that the political industry has become a, a monopoly and how we have to break it up to get more ideas in space. I mean, one of the other structural things, Jim, that I talk about mm. in my book is term limits. And the, the reason why I think term limits are important, like, you know, there's very, like you were saying at the start when we, we talked about being America being the policeman, term mm. limits, there are pros and cons. I could make the case for why they're good and why they're not good. And I do so in the book. And what I argue in the book is that even with both sides having good arguments, at the end of the day, what's happened at the federal level mostly is that there is more money and energy being put by our elected officials in getting reelected than there is in problem solving. It's gotten so out of whack sure. that I think we should give term limits a try. Now, they don't have, it doesn't have to be short term limits. It could be you know, 12 years, like six, six terms for a house member, two terms for a senator. But I do think that part of the problem is that getting reelected has become the, the, the only goal. And that's, a, that's really a problem. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book in this area about term limits is that, you know, in, I've been fortunate over my professional career to work with, you know, thousands of very talented people and to develop people and lead teams. And we have this notion in the private sector of renewal. And it, what it means is that like, well, nobody should be in the same job for, for, for 12 years. It's a, you need renewal. You need, if, if someone's doing a great job in their current role in a couple of years, they'd likely, they're likely to get promoted. And if they're, you know, or do something else to, 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 to further their skills and to sure. renew. Sure. And that, that concept of renewal is important. And I think what's happened in our federal structure of elected officials is one in which it's, it's, it's gotten very uh, cronyistic. It is cronyism. It's corrupt because of the money. Yeah. And it's, it's gotten to a point where it's not productive. And so I think that has to, that's one of the structural changes I talk about. I would love to see that. Uh, I'm a big fan of term limits. I also would like to see some sort of law. And I think they were discussing it at one point when Trump was in office about making it a rule where you could not, once you leave office, you could not become a lobbyist or, right. or something like that. Um, yes. I don't, I think that was squashed yes. when he was, when he, uh, when Biden came into power. Uh, but I, I know that was a, uh, uh, a, a strong effort uh, yeah. was being made for that. That would have been monumental, I think. Absolutely, I, I think I think so. I think the, the connections between government and lobbyists and and consulting it's 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 very you know it's ironic. So I was just reading about this. I think it was in the Times that mm. um, the people who who write the Treasury tax laws usually after they spend a couple of years in the Treasury Department. They often go to work for consulting firms to help wealthy clients avoid the same laws they wrote. 
<laughs> so, right, so they, they wrote the laws and they know the loopholes and then they go consult and make a lot of money because they help people avoid them. I mean, it's a, there is a little bit of this like this lobbyist thing is is a little it's a it, it's kind of gotten out of, out of whack. So I, I, I'm, I agree with you. Look, I mean, I, I think we need practical solutions to, to some of our problems as well as as this mindset change. Sure. And, um, sure. And, you know, I, I, one of the things that's that's interesting and that's discussed in the book. Hmm. Is that our when our founders, our the framers of the Constitution, gathered to at the Constitutional Congress? First of all, it's, they believed they were setting an example for the world. So, so like our earlier discussion, they thought that this new model of modern society was going to be exempl an exemplified model for other countries. Already, the U.S. Revolution was very closely tied to the French Revolution. They were kind of like sisters uh, in terms of the, the, the throwing, out, throwing over the monarchy, et cetera. Mm. But um, they also felt that they knew they couldn't foresee all the potential problems, which is why they made the constitution malleable. It was not supposed to be set in stone. I think they envisioned that every generation would, would update it or renew it or uh, change it if needed. So, so it's in some ways, I think perhaps our amendment process is too arduous because any, anything that's not changeable, in my view, is rigid and is gonna, and things need to adapt and, and evolve. So uh, anyway, I, I think that's an interesting uh, uh, point of view. It, it turns out that there was famously in the, in the late 1700s, there was a painting uh, of, it, was, it depicted God handing the Constitution down to Washington in the form of tablets, like Moses. Okay. Receiving it, right. But but when you think about that painting, it's so interesting in so many ways because first of all, it was part of a revisionist fervor that that imbued the 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 our revolutionary history in some religious sense. But but it's it was ironic first of all because the the Constitution was not set in stone as the tablets, it was supposed to be amendable. That's why they made it changeable. So right. that's that, so this, this notion of the image of it being stone is ironic. The second thing that I think is so ironic about that painting, and, and we, we shouldn't forget, is that it denotes the notion of government being top down, handed down. The whole premise of the Declaration of Independence was you know we the people get together and decide we wanna self-govern. We, we, the social contract, which was the, political mechanism of the enlightenment was all about people deciding to, to, to form a structure because of the consent of the governed. They agreed to be, to form a government. And the, that notion of bottom-up government to me is so wonderfully part of our credo that, and it's, this is very Jeffersonian, of course, that, that, um, that, you know, whenever we look at, we were talking about autocracies, these are top-down governments, right? They, 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 and, I, and so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting dilemma, this notion of how, what, how, where, what is government for in the first place and why is it formed? Is it formed bottom-up to, to represent the people and does it require the consent of the governed? It's a very interesting basic questions. You know, anyway, so I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but uh, no, no, I find uh, it. I find it fascinating. I, I can see why your book is rated four and a half stars on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Remind us all again, uh, the title of your book. Sure. It's American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. And I probably should mention 
you know, the enlightenment is a dirty word today, but I mm. went back to the enlightenment because I think it's so important. Um, it, first of all, was the political environment during which our country was founded, based on enlightenment principles. And the enlightenment for your listeners who don't know, it was a period of history where there was a newfound appreciation for the human ability of observation, empirical observation, and rational thinking. And it really was the foundation of a modern society. It came out of that, that era. So, and by the way, one of the ways you can, you, you can measure it is this way. If you try to take a look at objective facts regarding human prosperity, the numbers are quite astounding. Let me give you a couple. Okay. 200 years ago, in, in 200 years ago, the life expectancy was 30 years. Today, it's over 70 across the globe. Yep. 200 years ago, one in five children did not survive till age five. Today, almost mm -hmm. all do. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world lived in extreme poverty. And today, approximately one-fifth of the world lives in that level of, of, of poverty. Now, so, so it, by any measure objectively, we've created more prosperity, human flourishing in the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. And, and I say that with some trepidation because of course we have huge problems where you know we got problems with, with, that, with pandemics and with climate change and violence. There's a lot of problems, but we also need to take a little bit of the contextual longer term view that the framework of the enlightenment and the scientific objective framework has served us quite well. We've solved a lot of problems that way. And we've created prosperity in many ways. So, so I'm not saying by any means that everything's perfect. And whenever I make this argument, I get pushback from listeners and readers saying, well, are you saying we have no, no problems? Not, not at all. All I'm saying is that the Enlightenment framework has, has been very uh, um, expansive, number one. And number two, it's led to a lot of prosperity. It's what's created modern society. And we, we should throw it away very with a lot of care. If we're going to throw it away, we better be pretty careful about why we're throwing it away. So, and we have to, in my view, build on it. So that's why the, the book has about the enlightenment. Very, very good. I, I feel enlightened listening to you and I, I, I am anxious to read this, Thank you. <laughs> read this book, uh, being a bit of a history buff. So uh, I, I definitely- good. It's a lot of history. Yeah. I mean, what, 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 what's really interesting to me is this division between the schism between these two kind of different uh, compelling, uh, competing forms of government, this representative democracy and this more elite government. And you'll see in the book, I, I, I kind of use that framework, mm -hmm. not only to describe our founding, but I use that framework as a lens for five distinct periods of our history to examine them. And then of course, up, up till today. So um, I think it is interesting, you know, we, uh, one of the things that happened after our founding besides these two forces of, of kind of, of the enlightenment, you also had a pretty important counter enlightenment movement and a movement which rejected the enlightenment. And that also brought many complications in our history. And that's also discussed in the book. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, well, so <laughs> it's great that you said that because Jim, one of the things I say is that mm. there's been a pendulum like swing Mm -hmm. So across our history. So sometimes we move more towards this representative, democratic, more or kind of radical enlightenment view. Yeah. And then the pendulum comes back to this more moderate view. And our history tends to go back and forth. You can see this pattern. 
And that's described as well on American schism. So we're, one final question. Uh, where are we in that pendulum swing, you well, think, right now? So the pendulum swing is, is, um, is very, a very useful analogy. And I would argue that, we're, unfortunately, t- today we're, we're swinging t- towards more of a counter-enlightenment uh, mm. approach. Like we're rejecting facts and reason. And because yeah. we're in this, as I mentioned before, this emotional amygdala-driven discussion, which is not sure. serving us well. So, so I think uh, the, 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 we've, we've swung too far into an emotional uh, amygdala-driven debate where we, it's, it's easy and comfortable to hate other people as opposed to understanding them. So that, that's kind of, the, again, back to the mindset change. I think, I don't think our social media platforms are doing us a service here. I think we need incentives that are, that are not just about who shouts the most. I think uh, accuracy is important. Um, so, yeah, so that, I, that I leaves out the media. The media. <laughs> the media has a problem. But uh, look, part of the answer is having shows like this where we can discuss things and, and, and debate things and talk about some specific issues because that's part of this, the solution is, is, to, is thoughtful, respectful debate. Uh, and I do a lot of work on that today through with different groups across the country. Cool. Highlighting the word. Uh, I think the operative word there is respectful because yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. definitely, definitely messy. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed our, our conversation today. If somebody wanted to get in contact with you, um, yes. uh, how could they do that? Well, so th- there's a, a website called American schism book.com. So it's American and schism is S C H I S M book.com. And on there, I talk about the book, but they can also email me, and I love to hear from, from listeners and readers. So I encourage listeners, even if they're not going to buy the book, which is fine, go, go you'll get the, the, the crux of it by that site, and you can also get in touch with me. And of I course, do. the book is available wherever books are sold, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. And to make it easier for the podcast listeners, I will leave a link in the podcast description. So if you don't have pen and pad handy, just look in the description, or it'll be right there. Mr. Radwell. Thank this you, sir. Great. I really enjoyed it. I, I love what you're doing, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored. And um, I'd be happy to come back at some point if that if you thought that made sense. And Sweet. I, I congratulate you on the work that you're doing uh, discussing important issues with, with your listeners. Thank you, sir. Much obliged. You just heard the Things I Think About podcast. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, Jim Stroud wants to hear from you. Contact him at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And while you're at it, share this podcast and spread the word that it's up to us to save America.